open them up to Ephesians 5. I hope you've got a couple things with you this morning. If you're a member, you should have a, a deacon ballot that you can mark and put in in the offering plate. And, and more importantly, you notice we have a little bit more substantial notes this morning. I wanted to put some things in writing for you, and uh, I want to make available, uh, we will, the sources of most of what I'm going to talk about today. There's a couple of books on on abuse, specifically domestic abuse, that is free out in the lobby. If you go there where those round tables are in first impressions, there's a wall. These are available. They're free. They're for you as well as Cleveland County Abuse Prevention Council and information about that, and as well as resources from our own denomination that I'll tell you about later. Oftentimes in the life of the church, it is important for us to simply put the pause button on. We are a church who preaches expositionally, which means in part that we pick sections of the Bible, books of the Bible, and we preach it all. We preach every verse. That's our normal pattern. But today, I have put the pause button on that because there is an issue that we cannot ignore. We talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the end for a minute, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, was a pastor and a German that was born in a specific period of time. And he didn't get to choose when he was born. He grew up and there was things going on in his country that he could not ignore. It was part and parcel of him being a Christian to know how shall he live when people are murdering and oppressing other people. We have to ask the same question this morning. Because we live in a society that has completely lost what it means to be in a healthy relationship with the other. And so the main idea this morning, as the rescued children of God, we are called to demonstrate God's character and His gospel by recognizing, responding, and rescuing the most vulnerable in our community. The question could be asked, well, does the Bible really deal with abuse or is the Bible silent there's a bigger question here, isn't it? Should be on the table. How does one know what anything is right and wrong? Can we simply do something because the Bible doesn't say specifically that we should not do it? We are Christians. And we start with this presupposition that there is a triune God and He exists. And He exists in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so He is the one who we come to. If I could ask God this morning, God, what's your position on abuse? Would He say, well, Stephen, the modern psychologists say this. Would God go outside Himself to answer the question? The answer is no. There is no higher authority than God. And to answer any question about what is right and wrong, we start with God. And so when we say, what is healthy? What is right? What is true? I need to go no place other than my triune God to understand it. But it seems sort of weird, really. Abuse in marriage? Abuse in the home? Abuse in the church? It's strange. It's not really strange when you understand sin. The very place that's supposed to be the place of safety, security, and peace has become the place where the predators prowl, seeking who they might devour. 
What does the Bible say? Well, to understand abuse biblically, you have to understand the word oppression. We've been singing about it. We've been reading in Scripture already. The Old Testament is full of it. The Psalms are full of it. The word oppression simply means two things. It's used two ways. One is to come down on. To keep down by an unjust use of one's authority. That, that's it right there. Another more general term used in the Bible is simply to crush someone else. To crush them. It's what David speaks of. Wish we had time today. We don't. To look at Exodus, we could look from chapters 1 to chapters 22 and see how God deals with oppression. When God's people were oppressed and they cried out to them and He rescued them and He judged the oppressor and then He told God's people, don't you ever oppress someone else because you were oppressed and I rescued you. Turn with me to Psalms 146. I am reminded with my, my Who's Your One bookmark as I open up God's Word that this is providential and many of our ones have been abused. Psalms 146, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. Psalms 9.9 The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Is there any doubt the heart of God when it comes to oppression? There should not be, but there is. And so our Lord Jesus Christ gave us John chapter 10. We're going to look at that in your growth groups. I hope you're a part of a growth group because you're going to miss half the point if you're not. John chapter 10, we see God's family is like a sheepfold. It is a place of safety. A place where the vulnerable sheep find rest and food and sustenance. But it's also the place that the wolves climb over the, the gate, the fence, on the sides and prey on the most vulnerable. It is the shepherd's job to give his life for the sheep. More than one in three women and more. Listen, you need to pay attention. It's not just a woman issue. And more than one in four men in the U.S. have experienced rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And I would challenge you just as an aside to look into the homosexual community to where those statistics skyrocket. An estimated 1.3 million women are victimized by physical assault by an intimate partner. 85% of all domestic abuse victims are women. And our little girls, 20 to 24, are at the greatest risk of non-fatal intimate partner violence. And God gives us images in the Bible to help us understand His heart. It is that of a father. It is that of a shepherd. It is that of a bridegroom. And abuse distorts them all. So how do we know? We must stop 
in any culture, at any time, when we see oppression, oppression reigning, and we must say, look at my triune God for correction. That is what Reformation is. It's simply restoring ourselves to the character of God. He, listen, this is important. The triune God is our foundational basis for all healthy relationships. Three God-ordained institutions because of the fall is necessary. The church, the family, the civil authorities. And they will all pass away. And there is one that is eternal. And that is the family of God, the church. The church is eternal. The church is where we are most neglected. It is the first to go when your life gets busy. But it is that which is eternal. We will be each other's family and brothers and sisters forever. And it, you are only married to your spouse today. And it is our chance to display the very character of our Jesus and the gospel by how we treat each other. The truth. James 3.2. We all stumble in many ways. Amen. We've all blown it right here. We've all blown our tops to our wife this week. We've all not told them the things that we should. We've all manipulated people. We've all blew it. There's nobody righteous. No, not one. But what do you do when you are confronted with your sin? How does the Holy Spirit deal with you in the midst of your sin? There's a difference. We are convicted when we blow it. We respond in repentance when confronted with our sin. We do not minimize, blame, or mock those we hurt. We repent to them. Abusers are distinct. They are predators. They hunt, they groom, they plan, they manipulate, they dominate. With abusers, we see short-term I'm sorry's and long-term escalation. Abuse is like pornography. It always gets worse. Abuse must be recognized. It is sad to say that the primary context of abuse is love. That's what, listen, you've got to grab this this morning. I want to get to the so what, but we've got to understand this this morning. That's what makes it so traumatic. People are abused in a place where they ought to be safe. They are abused at the place of their most vulnerability. Listen to this definition. It's on your second page. I've written these down intentionally for you. Abuse. Domestic abuse. It's a helpful definition. A pattern of coercive or controlling behavior used by one individual to gain or maintain power control over another. Individual in the context of an intimate relationship. This includes any behavior that frighten, intimidate, terrorize, exploit, manipulate, hurt, humiliate, blame, injure, or wound an intimate partner. And despite what the abuser says, this has nothing to do with sex. This has nothing to do with money. This has nothing to do about what the Bible says. This has nothing to do about you making them angry. This has everything to do about their desire to control and overpower someone else. That's the heart of abuse. Abuse uses their power and their control through fear, shame, and blame. That's their weapons of mass destruction. Abusers make themselves lord over someone else and will do anything to keep control. The U.S. Advisory Board on Child Abuse and Neglect suggests that domestic violence may be the single major precursor to child abuse and neglect fatalities in this country 
Domestic abuse just doesn't hurt the partner. It destroys the children. Five categories of abuse that you may or may not be aware of. But you may or may not be living in or someone you love. Physical abuse, that's probably what's in our mind when we think of abuse. Is the intentional or reckless use of physical force in a way that may result in bodily injury or physical pain. Though physical may be the most common when we ask somebody what abuse is, this is probably the most common. Emotional abuse, also called mental, verbal, or psychological abuse, is a pattern of behavior that promotes a destructive sense of fear, obligation, shame, or guilt. If your spouse neglects, frightens, isolates, belittles, or exploits, plays mind games, or lies frequently, or blames, or shames, or threatens you, They are being emotionally abusive. Emotional abuse is just as destructive as physical abuse. Sexual abuse. Sexual abuse happens when sex is not an expression of emotional or spiritual union. Taken out of God's design, sex is easily corrupted. It is corrupted in the worst way when sex is demanded, required, or taken by force. And yes, this happens all the time in context of marriage. Spiritual abuse. This happens in the home and in the pulpit. Spiritual abuse occurs when the oppressor establishes control or domination by using scripture, doctrine, or a leadership role as weapons. They weaponize God's word to manipulate and control people. Economic abuse. Like Other forms of abuse may be subtle or overt, but in general includes tactics that limit the partner's assets Access, access to assets or family finances or that conceals information. Listen, the oppressor withholds money in order to control freedoms and relationships, often creating isolation and forced dependency. These categories of abuse are like cars on a train going through the mountains. And when you see one, you guarantee you can't see the whole train. You might say one, and you might say, well, at least they're not being physical to that person. There is always a train. It's going through the mountains, and though you see one car, you don't see them all. Abuse always gets worse, and so it behooves us here for a minute to just stop. Just stop. Look at that paper. Has this ever happened to you? Does this ever happen to the ones that you love? If it has, I want to tell you something this morning. This was wrong. This was evil. This is satanic. And this was not your fault. But this has caused trauma in your life. And trauma is not like a cut on your hand that give it two weeks and it goes away. Trauma is deep. Trauma can only be healed from the inside out. Abuse is a gospel issue. I know you didn't think I was ever going to get to it. Open your Bible to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. So much here. Just want you to see God's character. God's character has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And He is the standard 
And Christ rescues. Well, haven't we already been singing about it? Ephesians 5 is based in the understanding of this. Right belief leads to a right living. Wrong belief leads to wrong living. And so in Ephesians 5, he gets to marriage. It's far bigger than just marriage. Verse 23. Ephesians 5 verse 23. Here's what we read. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. So we see in the context of a healthy relationship that there is a head. In the church it is Christ. In the family... It is Christ. We're going to get there in a minute. Absolutely, there is an under-shepherd, and I am the pastor. We have a plurality of pastors here. In the home, the man is the head. He provides direction and leadership. But what kind of leader is he? This matters eternally. What does he do? What does Christ do for the church? He is its Savior. Do you see that? What does that word mean? It means rescuer. That's what it means. Jesus came to rescue. A savior is a person. Listen, this is the definition. I'm making it up. Not, I don't, you don't look up the words in the Bible in Webster's. You look it up in the original language. What did it mean when they spoke it? Savior is a person who rescues someone from danger and violence. That's what a Savior is. He rescues. The most dangerous reality is that in many lives, people are most dangerous because they have a sense of their own invulnerability. We are vulnerable. That's why... God Almighty calls a sheep. A father and a husband provides a place of peace and safety and protection. And so does the pastors of a church. Verse 25, look at it. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave Him up for her. Love. Not your definition of love, not my definition of love. That the understanding of love emanates from the triune God. The way they love each other is how we love each other. There is no other way. No other biblical way. God's eternal love within the Trinity is expressed to His own people. And because we have received it, we give it. Love. It's expressed through servant leadership and sacrificial leadership. This is the way we lead. This is the head. Jesus came not to be served, but to what? Serve. If you're a man in this room. If you're a husband in this room. That's what you signed up for. To serve, to put yourself dead last and love it. And you, if you're single, you should be preparing yourself for that reality. We serve. Servant leadership is the core essential quality of any leader in the church and within the home or in within his community. Sacrificial leadership. Look at verse 25. He gave up himself. He gave up his rights and privileges. 
And if He wouldn't have, you would not be saved. He laid down His rights, His privileges, so that we might be rescued. Christ is the standard and Christ rescued. Christ is the standard and Christ protects. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, and if you just understood the culture that this was written into, you'd be like, you know, everybody's sitting there going, love your wives. <laughs> if, we, if we understood the culture, everybody's sitting there going, what did you just say? Oh, yes, Christ was a revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives. How so? How do you know what love is right here? Well, first of all, we can understand the word if you look it up in the original language. It's agape. It's God's love. It's a God love. But I love verse 29. Look at it. It says, assuming we love, care, protect ourselves. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. This is the most simplest picture of what a healthy relationship should look like, what it should look like in his church and in your marriage. See the picture. This is the gospel picture. Christ rescues you, right? He brings you to a place of safety. He cherishes you. That is, He covers you in a place of safety. And He nourishes you for your growth. This is what we seek to bring to the world in which we live because it has been given to us. We have been rescued and we are cherished by our God. That means we are protected and we are given what is necessary for us to grow as we are protected and safe. This is the gospel foundational stuff. Somebody might say, well, preacher, you, you skipped verse 22, and I was hoping you were going to get there, right? Y'all wives submit to your husbands. The problem is we missed verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. There can be no biblical submission in the home if there not, is not equal submission first. So I want to be clear this morning in the context of abuse. God calls no one to submit to destructive behavior, period. God calls no one to submit to destructive behavior. Such a thought is demonic. What does a healthy relationship look like? What is submission? What is equal submission? What does headship in the home look like when it's healthy? And what does a wife's submission look like? Well, turn with me. We can look see it in the church. If it's not true in the home, it won't be true in the church. If it's not true in the church, it won't be true in the home. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 12. Listen, this is the point, you see. Are we striving for this to be a reality in our, in our lives, in our homes, in our church? I can guarantee you that the abuser is not. Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, Hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so much you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
That's the context of a healthy relationship. That's the context of the struggle of holiness and healthy relationships. Marriage, church, and the home is designed by God to be a place of safety, mutual trust, sacrificed care, and honesty. And in doing so, it displays both the gospel of our salvation and the very heart of our triune God. To this we are called. Abuse flips it all upside down. Abuse flips the gospel upside down. Abuse flips the character of God on His head. Abuse is a demonic distortion of God's design. Think about it for a minute. Just think about our definitions for a second. Abusers do not rescue those they claim to love. They endanger them. Abusers do not protect those they they claim to love. They harm, they neglect, and they attack them. So how should we respond as Christians when someone we love or even ourselves is being abused? Scripture is very clear. It's found right there in Ephesians. Just back up to verse 11 and 12. How should we respond? Ephesians 5 verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is a shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. The church is a church that is in action. We are not passive on these issues. Abuse is demonic and evil and therefore must not be tolerated but amputated. We don't tolerate it. We cut it off. It is evil, it is wicked, and it will destroy you and those we love. This is a verse that is present, active, imperative. It is, it is right now, it is ongoing, and this is not a request for the child of God. This is an imperative. We have no part. What does that word mean? No part of it. Having a part of something here is to participate, to associate, to fellowship, to connect with. We have no fellowship. We have no association. We have no connection with someone who is abusing someone else. We expose it. You see that? Two responses. No part of it. Instead, we expose it. In other words, we as the church are not part of a cover-up team to cover up abuse. Our job as Christians is to expose first our own sin... And when someone's being oppressed, we expose the oppression. But we must do this with wisdom. There's more stress in this message for me than has had in many because there's so much that can be misunderstood. But this at least, brothers and sisters, needs to get the conversation started. Our response is the response of the Bible. We rescue and we protect. Because that's what Christ did for us. There's no option. There's some dangers though. The danger is first, non-response. The non-response is a danger because we just minimize it. They brought it on themselves. Well, they could leave if they wanted to. It's to minimize it or even deny it. Well, at least they're not being beat. It is overreaction. Now, I might be prone to this one. You know what an overreaction does? It goes gets a big stick or a shotgun and goes and attacks the abuser. You know what happens with that, don't you? He takes it out on the abused later. 
Overreaction is a danger. And oh, we're pretty good at this one too. Long ranger response. This just thinks, oh, this person's being abused. I can handle it all by myself. I'll fix this thing. No, you can't. If a person's being abused, you can't fix it yourself. And if you know somebody, you can't fix it yourself either. Those are dangerous. But there is a priority. What is the priority? It is protection over reputation. We're going to talk about the church and why we have neglected this in a minute. Here's one reason. We're scared of our own reputation. We don't want to get in anybody else's mess. We're too busy in our own lives. I will remind us that the gospel at this point, that Jesus emptied himself so that we might be protected and rescued. And so must we. The priority is protection. The priority is partnership instead of ignorance. The fact that you don't know how to help somebody is no excuse to not help them. We create partnerships. This is why, brothers and sisters, I have placed the gateway ministry in front of you for your consideration to reach this community. It's because it is a partnership ministry where we partner together with other people to help those who are suffering. What is my limitation and what is yours this morning? The limitations, what are they? It's complicated. (laughs) It's complicated. This is not an easy issue. I'm sticking to my notes this morning because I've studied so much, I'm just liable to go off on a rabbit trail at any moment. You know, there's limitations. Here's one abuse is always immoral and often illegal, but not always. Abuse, as defined on your notes, is always immoral in the eyes of God, but there's not always something that the law and the legal civil authorities can do about it. Legal issues, investigations are the reason God has ordained the civil authorities. And they are our partners, not our enemies. And we partner with them to bring people to a place of safety and peace. We are limited in that way. What is our actions as individuals in the church? The priority is protection, but how do we do this? How do we protect Three words, the first thing, that's inseparably linked together. We listen to the abused. We believe the abused. We love the abused. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, loves, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love endures. In other words, we are commanded to be an abiding presence in someone's life. To provide a safe space. For them to be listened to. For them to be believed. And for them to be loved. We are not called to investigate. The civil authorities are called to investigate. We are called to love. And just by the way. Only 3 to 9% of any accusation is proved false. Which means that over 90 to 97% of people who stand up and say. I am being abused are actually being abused. Number two, first, we listen, we believe, and we love. Second, we help them find an equipped counselor. This is critical. There's resources that are available, and we will make them available. But if someone has been traumatized, they need someone qualified to help them walk through the trauma. And it is okay that that's not me or you this morning. 
I am here. You have been given all that you need to listen, to believe, and love. And we partner with those that are equipped to help people through counseling. Sidebar. The truth is, most people live in an abusive relationship, self-medicate to cope with their reality. So when we rescue someone, we must help them get clean so that the counseling may actually take root. We listen, we believe, we love. We help them get to a qualified, equipped counselor and listen to the third one. You may have never heard this in your life. We help them develop a safety plan. They are abused. What is our goal? Protection. No. Not reconciliation of the marriage. It's a separate issue. The number one priority is safety and protection. That's what's on our radar. And so we help them develop a safety plan. We just don't wing this thing, you see. Because their very lives are at stake. We help them think this thing through thoroughly. There are resources to help us do this. But we must help them understand what does it look like to give them control and to give them a voice that has been taken away. Two important distinctions here. Child abuse and domestic abuse. These are distinct in the sense of how we are commanded to respond. You and me and everybody in North Carolina are mandatory old and younger. That is, any reasonable suspicion of anyone 18 years old and younger. We call Child Protective Services. We call the civil authorities and we report. So how do we respond in child abuse? We listen, we believe, we love, we report. Then we get appropriate counseling. The distinction is in domestic abuse. The abused is given the legal choice to respond. In other words, we go back to the beginning. The she has to be given her voice back. But the abused, whether it's a male or female, must be must be given a choice and then guided through what they need to do next. So here's the question. Why does the church avoid this? I mean, when's the last time you heard somebody preach on it? Why does the church avoid it? As a matter of fact, why does the church begins to... Have you, have you heard lately? Churches caught up in covering up their responses to abuse in the past. Why would a pastor hear of a, a wife that's being abused by her husband and simply say, well, let's just meet for marriage counseling. You just need to hold on and it's going to be okay and just leave her in it. Why would a pastor respond that way? Men have lost their ministries because of that, by the way. Recently. We've already said it. Number one, they're afraid of their own reputation, the reputation of the church, especially if the abuse goes on inside the church. But this is true. It's under the radar. I hear it all the time. Most won't get involved because they're afraid of being part of divorce. If, if, I, if I get involved with this, wonder if they get divorced. This is going to be, God hates divorce. This is going to be my fault. You see, we are in turn as a church are being manipulated by the abusers. Because that's what they tell us. A spouse who abuses destroys their marriage and only has themselves to blame. They break covenant with their spouse and their God. 
Abusers stop being a savior and start being a predator to the very one they're called to love. If abuse happens, is divorce inevitable? No. But listen, true repentance is not, and I'm sorry, a few tears. Now let's move on. True repentance is a change of mind and behavior. Well, how long does that take? How long have they been abused? It's going to take that long for them to begin to heal. You feel that sober reality? That's how serious it is. If divorce comes due to abuse, who's to blame? The abuser's to blame. It is classic abuse to blame shift and manipulate and try to put the blame on their sin on someone else other than themselves. If we have someone caught up in a church discipline issue, we're about to get into that in Corinthians. And we appeal to that person for years to repent. To stop this habitual sin and follow Christ. And they say, no! No! I love it. I'm doing it. There's nothing you can do about it. We bring them before the church and we remove them from membership. Can I ask you a question? Whose fault is that? Is it the pastor's fault? Is it the church's fault? Is it God's fault? It's the sinner's fault who refuses to follow Christ and refuse to repent. Listen very clearly this morning. We need to stop allowing unbelievers to use Scripture when they do not follow the God of Scripture nor desire to display the character of the father, the shepherd, and the bridegroom. Until they struggle with wanting to follow Him, they do not need to use my Scripture to defend their sin. They're simply reading somebody else's mail. Should we forgive them? Abusers. Should we forgive them? We've already read that passage. We forgive as we've been forgiven. But forgiveness does not mean access. Can I say that again? Forgiveness does not mean access. The New Testament never teaches that forgiveness gives people access to those they harmed. Should a pedophile be forgiven? There's a right answer to that question. Absolutely. Should we let them keep our children in the bed babies in the kids' ministry? No. No access. We listen. We believe. We love. We get them counseling. We get, to say, we get them to a safe place. And if needed, we call the civil authorities. Before we get to the so what, I want, you to, I want to understand how are we as the church, as your pastors, how are we going to respond with the abuser and the abused? Right? Let's say they're married. How are, how are we going to respond to that? The abuser and the abused have separate paths of discipleship. One path is the path of healing. It involves healing. Yes, it involves forgiveness. The other path is a path towards repentance. They're not the same path. Is reconciliation of their marriage 
in the future prayed for? Absolutely. Is it fought for? You bet it is. But in the moment of that abuse, they are on separate paths of discipleship until God grants them repentance and they fought and the abuser follows in a path that's distinct and then the reconciliation and work on their marriage now begins. So what today? It's a lot there, isn't it? I didn't scratch the surface. I, I didn't scratch it. I didn't make a dent in it. <laughs> But we need to lean lean into this issue, brothers and sisters. I hope you see both the importance and the complexity of this issue. It's not going away. Not until Jesus comes back. Anywhere you fly in this world, there's somebody being oppressed. And anywhere you fly in the world, you should find Christians fighting against it. Will you answer the call? This is not going to be easy. It's not going to be clean. It's not going to be quick. But God has rescued us from the mess of our sin and has put us in a place of safety and of growth. And we are the hands and feet of God on this earth. Isaiah 1.17 Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. I love this. Plead the widow's cause. You know what someone does when they plead the widow's cause? They give her a voice. They give her a voice. Do you know that's the worst thing about abuse? It robs it as if it jerks their voice box out. God commands us that we plead their cause. We rescue them. We give them a place of safety. We give them a voice. I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A German pastor that preached the gospel and at the same time sought to overflow Hitler's, overthrow Hitler's regime. There were many religious critics that said he should simply preach the gospel and leave the Holocaust in God's hands. probably could get that argument in this topic, couldn't we? But see, Bonhoeffer lived a life and he believed that right belief must be matched with what he called responsible action in the real world in which he lived. Which means in the face of evil, listen, this is basic Christianity. Basic. We enter into the suffering of those who are suffering And we bear their suffering and we lead them toward the one who is our refuge and strength. There's no way to do that without getting dirty. Christ took on flesh for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave his life for the oppressed. And he saw that it was a a display of both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the character of his God. And brothers and sisters, we cannot do less this morning. Four resolves I'll put before you that are for me, and I pray for you. I will rescue the vulnerable no matter what it costs me personally. I'm asking you to resolve that because there's some things you need to do in your life to make that true. I'm saying this about myself. I will rescue the vulnerable, and it doesn't matter what it costs me. 
Christ has given me everything. There's nothing eternal can ever be taken away from me nor you. I will earnestly seek to display God's character in my life and relationship by providing a place of safety and growth for the most vulnerable. And that begins in your home. But listen, it doesn't end there. I will refuse to partner with oppression and those who oppress. And I will never cover up what God says to expose. And that begins with me. This is not a message for you to start throwing rocks at other people's sinful issues in their life. (laughs) But it is one where we need to go home this afternoon and read these definitions and ask the question, am I manipulating my spouse? And if you see it in your life, it should scare you and you should repent. So how can we respond? You're going to see a video in a minute. It's going to give you a a website. The Southern Baptists have spent much time developing curriculum to help us be equipped to help those who are suffering. It is free. It is online. It can be done at your own speed. The website will be it's on your notes. It will also be on the screen. There's two booklets that I challenge you to read. Look how thin they are. Very, very thin. Very easy to read. The definitions are here. Helpful. They are free. They were available. We are available. God commands your pastors to give you the gospel and their very lives. And He does so because He, needs, he tells you to do it too. We have a women's event on the 26th, a breakfast. This is the topic. I ask you to come and to bring friends and family, brothers and sisters. This is the heart of foster care and adoption. This is the heart of it. This is why we do it. You don't do it because it feels good. You don't do it because it's pretty, nor it's easy, nor it's simple, or because you're promised of how it's going to turn out. You do it because this is what the Lord has done for us. How can we do less? God has called you to listen, to love, and to believe those that are most vulnerable. Will you answer the call? This is not complicated, brothers and sisters. Give them you. Give them you. And give them the gospel. Let's pray together. And so Lord, this is a heavy subject, a heavy topic. And Lord, we trust you that this message will get to those who need to hear. Lord, I I need you to help now because we're going to go out and process this message. And so Lord, help me and Forgive me for misrepresenting or or not being too calm or not being too excited. And Lord, would your truth bear that you have a character and you have a heart and your heart is that of a rescuer. You never abandon or abuse your children. And Lord, today in this room, we should be so thankful for that. God, all is not well in our communities and in the lives of those around us that we love. And so, Lord, equip us 
Give us the boldness to lean in on these issues and walk with the suffering for the glory of your name. Now, Lord, help us now respond as your kingdom children. In Jesus' name, amen.